We just finished last week the greatest chapter in the Bible, I think, Romans chapter 8. And it ended with one of the best verses in the Scriptures as well. After listing several things that could destroy our faith in Christ or hurt us emotionally, physically, even kill us, Paul concluded Romans chapter 8 by saying that there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. But before Paul can, can go on from there and, and apply this is how we are to live in light of these great truths, he's got a very serious concern that he needs to address. There's a serious criticism that could be raised against the trustworthiness of what he has said so far. And that issue is, what about the Jews? What about the Jewish people? What about Israel? The problem is that most of the Jews had not believed Paul's gospel. They had rejected Jesus as as their Messiah and their Savior and Lord. Paul is so concerned about this that he spends three chapters, chapters 9 through 11, talking about it. His concern is not just the status of Israel, though he is very concerned about Israel. But uh, even more than that, the primary issue is the faithfulness and righteousness of God. Is the God who made these saving promises to Israel faithful to his promise? Is he able to accomplish his saving purposes for his people? Can he make good on his promises? If God's promises to Israel have not been fulfilled, how can we be sure that the great promises of Romans chapter 8, for example, all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose, how can we be sure that he can actually fulfill that? So let's look at Romans chapter 9, verses 1 to 13. Would you stand and we'll read from this passage and see how Paul begins to answer this issue. Romans chapter 9, verses 1 to 13. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, And the promises to them belong the patriarchs and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, Not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. Father, 
you have given us your word and its truth. We need to hear the truth of what you have to say to us. I need your help, Father, to teach it and to make it clear in the way that I ought to. So help me by your Holy Spirit to make it clear, to teach your word faithfully. Visit us, Father, through your Holy Spirit. Apply it to our hearts. Strengthen us by its truths. Give us a big vision of who Christ is for us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So Paul shifts gears from celebration to lamentation. He begins in verse 1 by strongly affirming he is speaking the truth in Christ, not lying, and that his conscience bears him witness in the Holy Spirit. Evidently, he knows that some may have reason to question the truthfulness of what he's about to say because he's going to Christ as his confirmation of the, of the truth of what he has to say. And he's saying that the Holy Spirit bears witness that of the truth of what he's going to say. And what he's claiming is, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. He's saying, my grief is great, and I'm really distressed, and I'm continually distressed over, over this issue of my heart. They say, well, hey, Paul, who knew? Paul, why are you so sad? What's going on? Paul's great sorrow in verse 3, his great sorrow and unceasing anguish is for the brother Israelites, his fellow countrymen. So relatively few of them had believed in Christ for their salvation. So intense is his desire that they be saved that he says, I could wish that I were accursed. Wow. I could wish that I were anathema. Cut off from Christ for the sake of my fellow Jews. What Paul means is this, if his going to hell could save his countrymen from hell, he would do it. Now do you see why Paul prefaces what he's saying by affirming in Christ, by by the witness of the Holy Spirit, that he's speaking the truth? Does he really love them that much that he would go to hell for their sake? Does he really love his fellow Jews that much, especially since they, he had suffered persecution at their hands many times? And he has said in this letter um, that just being a Jew and having God's law can't save them. They could, they could have taken out his hate speech and said, what are you saying, Paul? You, you're just trashing your background. Because Paul's a Jew. But he says he is so grieved over their unbelief, if being cut off from Christ and entering eternal judgment would save them, he would want the exchange. He he says, I could wish this, I could wish this, if it would work. Paul really knows it can't work. No mere human can take another's place under the curse of final judgment. Paul would have known God's answer to Moses when he asked to be cut off if that's what it took to save Israel from their sin in making and worshiping a golden calf. So in that um, Exodus 32, Moses returned to the Lord and said, This people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book 
that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. So, so God turned Moses down when he said, hey, take me under your judgment if, it, if that's what it takes to forgive Israel. And he said, no, I'm not going to do that. So Paul knew that. He knows there's no deal, such deal as that to make with God. But he has such extreme and unceasing grief for the many among his countrymen who had rejected Christ, which was their only hope for salvation from the wrath of God. Paul still had joy. Yeah, he, he didn't only have grief, he had joy. He wrote in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 6 that he was sorrowful but always rejoicing. So if you've seen the, the Pixar movie that's out, Inside Out, they got this 11-year-old girl with these, these little beings in her head that portray her emotions. And so uh, she's got joy and she's got sadness. Well, Paul had joy and he had sadness in his head, in his heart. But he, he had deep sorrow for, for the sake of his people. And I ask this today, do you have family members or friends for whom you have this kind of sorrow and grief? Do you have grief in your heart for, for lost people that you know in your lives? Or maybe a people group um, in the world? Such as, such as the Jews, if you have deep sorrow, it's appropriate to have grief over people who are lost, people who are in your family, people that you know. Very appropriate. In verse 4, Paul gives a major reason why his sorrow was so deep for Israel, because they were God's chosen people. They are Israelites, he said upon whom God had bestowed many great blessings and privileges in the past and to whom he had promised salvation for the future. Think about a person that you might know who has had a lot of privilege, had a greatly, greatly gifted person, who just trashed their heritage and has gone down in a big way. That's what Paul was feeling for his, his fellow Jews. He said they are Israelites. To them belongs the adoption God had redeemed Israel from Egypt as his son. The glory, the glory of God, the Shekinah glory would appear in, in the tabernacle in the temple over the ark. The covenants. God had made covenants with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, with Israel when God delivered them from Egypt with, and with King David. He set them apart as God's own holy people through whom the Messiah would come. They had the giving of the law. God revealed himself on Sinai as their God who had delivered them from slavery and gave them good commandments to live by as his people set apart from the nations. They had the worship. God gave Israel the patterns of worshiping him according to his way of redemption. On earth as it is in heaven, through the priests, the sacrifices, the tabernacle, and the temple, they had promises that were tied in with God's covenants that Abraham's descendants would be multiplied like the number of the stars and, and, and the sand. All nations would be blessed in him and his offspring. In verse 5, he says, To them belong the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God specially selected them to uniquely bless and to be a blessing to the world as God's special chosen people. He said, From them is the Messiah, according to the, to, to, to the flesh. From their race came the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior King, who would deliver Israel from her enemies and bring peace and righteousness to the world. The Messiah would be a Jew from the line of David. He is what the adoption, the glory, the worship, the covenants, the law, the promises, and patriarchs were preparing them for. 
And this Messiah Jesus is not just a man, Paul says. He is God over all. God over all. Who is blessed forever. The eternally happy and, and exalted God. God has invested himself in the fulfillment of his promise to Israel in his promised son. So God just says, my son is how I'm going to fulfill these promises for you. So his promise of salvation cannot fail. That's why the gospel, the good news of Jesus the Christ, is to the Jew first. They're first in line to receive the gospel. And then also, next, comes to us Gentiles. But it's still confusing, in spite of Paul ending on this high note of the, the Messiah, the Savior, is God over all. Uh, it's still confusing as to that Israel has largely rejected the fulfillment of God's promise. Help us to understand, Paul. Help, help us to get it. How could this be? How, the, how is this not a failure for God's promise? In verse 6, Paul denies God's word has failed. He says, it is not as though the word of God has failed. And here's the reason. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. That is, not all who are of ethnic Israel are truly Israel. Who is true Israel? True Israel are those ethnic Jews who believe in the Messiah. To, to, to prove his point, in verses 7 to 13, Paul will show that Israel's history has involved a continual winnowing, a selecting process of separating out according to God's choice and not merely by human descent. According to God's choice and not merely by human descent. So in verse 7, Paul gives his first example of God separating out according to his choice and not mere human descent is with Abraham's sons. He says not all are true children of Abraham because they are his physical offspring. And he quotes from Genesis 21. So what's going on, if you know the, the story of Abraham and Sarah, God had promised to give them a son. And they waited for a bit and they thought, well, God obviously needs some help with this because we're not seeing a son and we're old. So uh, they, um, Sarah gave to Abraham her maid, Hagar, and said, here, take Hagar, go have a child by her. And that'll, that'll work. God can use that. So they did that, and, and uh, Ishmael was born. So um, in verse 12 of Genesis 21, this, what's going on here is Abraham is distressed by Sarah's demand that he send away the slave woman, Hagar, and her son Ishmael, because Ishmael was mocking her son Isaac. And so in Genesis 21, God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. By the way, I don't know how many of you ever had God say that to you about your wife. Whatever she says to you, do it. But if you hear that from God, then do it. Otherwise, you're on your own. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So that's the quote that Paul gives in, um, in verse 7 of Romans 9. The word named, both in Genesis 21 and in Paul's quote of Romans, is the word called. So through Isaac your offspring shall be called. 
And God is the one who calls people to become his children, not human DNA. And we'll see this in, in verses 8 and 9. So let's go to verse 8. Paul draws out this principle. It is not the children of the flesh of natural human descent who are God's children, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. So that's the principle. Then in verse 9, he says, For this is what the promise said, About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. Now this is from Genesis 18, and this is after Ishmael's birth, when the the Lord promised a son by Sarah. And so God sends some emissaries, three men, one of them might have been God himself. And so Genesis 18 tells about three men who appear to Abraham and the word of the Lord they bring to him. And one of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Sarah overhears the Lord's word to Abraham and laughs to herself, thinking it was impossible that she and Abraham could have children of their own, seeing that they were so ancient. And uh, and so she laughs, and in response, the Lord said to Abraham, Is anything too hard for the Lord? Then he repeated the promise. I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. Paul's point is that God did indeed exercise his sovereign choice in determining who would be his children. And that word sovereign, God's sovereign choice, means he has ultimate authority and freedom to do as he pleases. He's, he's able to do whatever he desires and whatever he plans. So by God's sovereign choice in determining who would be his children, it was to be the children born according to the promise to Abraham and by God's doing. So God does what he promises. And it's not just those who are born by natural means as is in the case of Ishmael. So just being an offspring of Abraham didn't work. It had to be according to God's promise. And his promise was Sarah would have the son. The invincibility of the promise is based upon God's accomplishing his revealed word according to his purpose. What Paul wants us to see in light of verse 6 is that people should not think the word of God has failed if only some Jews enjoy the blessing of the gospel, while others do not. Don't think God's word has failed because this is in keeping with the way God has worked throughout history. He's constantly been selecting out from a larger group and narrowing it down according to his purpose. So for us today, I think we get this, but it it needs to be said that just being born into a Christian family doesn't make you a Christian. I think we know that, but sometimes we, we somehow feel that because I have, my grandmother's a Christian, my father's a Christian, my, my aunt is a Christian, that works for me, I'm covered. Nor does it guarantee you're going to become one just being born into a Christian family. Just attending a church doesn't make you a Christian. Not even attending Harvest makes you a Christian. You need to be united to God's Son, the Son of His promise, Jesus, through faith. Just hanging out with Christians, just being in Christian groups, just doing Christian things doesn't make you a Christian. You need to connect with Jesus. But some could object that the only reason God didn't choose Ishmael was that Ishmael had the wrong mom, Hagar. 
And Isaac had the right mom, Sarah. So Paul cites another example of God's choosing a descendant of Abraham, not based upon human standards. And that's in verses 10 through 12. So it's kind of confusing. So hopefully you can track with me in this passage. In, in verse 10, um, see that when Rebekah had conceived children by one man. So Isaac's wife, so Isaac was the son of promise, and he married Rebekah. Rebekah was barren, like Isaac's mom had been barren. Isaac prayed for her, and Becky, as he liked to call her, <laughs> conceived twins by Isaac. And those twins were Jacob and Esau. The twins struggled within her womb. She wondered what was going on, so she sought the Lord. God, what's going on in my womb? And in Genesis 25, 23, we read, And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Oh, that explains it. i got two nations. Let's check that out in the ultrasound. Honey, i got two nations in my womb. That's the problem. And they're at war with one another. Two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. And this is the quote that's in uh, verse 12 of, of Romans 9. She was told the older will serve the younger. So there's that's the promise. The older will serve the younger. That's God's word. So Esau came out first. They were twins. Esau came out first, so he was the older. Jacob came out last, holding on to Esau's heel. And he was the younger. So it was the custom in that culture that the oldest son would have the, the birthright. Other siblings would submit to him. How's that working in your family? Just trick question. But God's purpose and promise that the older Esau would serve the younger Jacob overturned the custom. Why did God choose Jacob over Esau? Why did he? Well, God chose Jacob over Esau when they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad. So he chose Jacob to receive the blessings of the covenant promises before he was born and before he did anything good or bad. Likewise, he excluded Esau from his covenant promises before he was born and did anything good or bad. But we still want to know what was the reason for God's choosing Jacob and not choosing Esau. And Paul says in verse 11, it was in order that God's purpose of election might continue. It was that God's electing purpose might remain, that it might stand. What was the basis of God's purpose of election? He continues, he says, not, not because of works. It was not because of works. God's election of Jacob and non-election of Esau was not based on his foreseeing their works, good or bad. It's not like he looked down and said, okay, I see, I see that they're both rascals, but Jacob's going to be a better rascal than, than Esau, so I think I'll choose him. No. Works had nothing to do with God's choice other than the result of God's choice. Rather, God's purpose of election was based in God himself on his sovereign choice, his absolute authority and freedom to choose as he pleased. It says it's because of him who calls, God who called into existence Jacob as his, his son of promise. 
He revealed his electing purpose in the promise, the older shall serve the younger. So the word of God has not failed, verse 6. Rather, his purpose of election as revealed in his word continues. It prevails. And then in verse 13, Paul quotes from Malachi. That's the last book in in our Old Testament, Malachi, chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. And what he's doing there is he's expanding on verse 12 of Romans chapter 9 by confirming that the different destinies of Jacob and Esau were not simply seen in advance by God, but were purposed by him. So what was going on in Malachi? Well, God was calling Israel to repentance, one of his favorite pastimes, calling Israel to repentance. (laughs) And in calling Israel to repentance, God said, I have loved you. And Israel's response was, well, how have you loved us? And God says, is not Esau Jacob's brother? declares the Lord. And here's the quote that Paul quotes in verse 13 of chapter 9 of Romans. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. His love for Jacob, who became Israel, was not based on his being a better person than Esau. Both of them were immoral in their own ways. God's love for Jacob was in choosing to bestow the covenant blessings of Abraham upon him and his offspring so that they would be his special people. His hatred of Esau was in leaving him to his natural sinfulness and not granting his blessings on him so he and his descendants would not be his people. In fact, Esau or the nation that descended from him, Edom, so Esau and Edom, Um, becomes a type or like a symbol of those who are ungodly, those who are rejected by God and punished forever. In fact, in Malachi 1.4, God says, they, Edom, will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Paul's point is that most of ethnic Israel is identified with Esau and Ishmael as they had rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the fulfillment of the privileges that God had granted to them as Israelites. This is why Paul is so grieved. God's word has not failed, for not all ethnic Israel is of God's true Israel. He has throughout history been carrying out his purpose of election. Paul has more to say about God's plans for ethnic Israel. Spoiler alert, in in chapter 11 of Romans, I think God's saying there that uh, there's yet a great gospel harvest coming for ethnic Israel. For us, we can have great confidence and sure hope that God is able to accomplish his promises. God does exactly what he says he's going to do, according to his purpose. That he will surely keep us in his saving grace until we die, if we're in Christ, and beyond that, he'll bring us to himself and, and give us glory. He's totally able to do that. We have this hope because his choice and calling of us was not based upon anything in us, not upon anything we would do or anything we would become. He didn't look and, and say, man, she's going to make a great one. I think I'm going to choose her. It's by God's choice that you become who you are in Christ.
and his choice is, is the, it's, it's his grace. It's his grace. Election is pre-planned grace. God's choice is pre-planned grace. He plans to set his grace upon sinful people. Paul clearly believes that the people are saved ultimately because of God's sovereign choice. Because of God who calls us to salvation in his son. But this is the same Paul who has made it very clear that people are responsible to believe the gospel of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ if they are to be saved. Or they're responsible for not believing. They're responsible for their sin and they deserve judgment. How God's sovereign choice and our responsibility to believe are reconciled is a mystery. The Bible just teaches both as fully true. It's not partly this, partly that. It's God is sovereign in his choice. He will save according to his purpose. And you are responsible to believe or to not believe. Both things are clearly taught in Scripture. And and the mistake that we make is when we try to, to mix them together and figure out how they work. How should we respond? Well, given that I am in myself a sinner who deserves only eternal judgment, I should respond in stunned, joyful gratitude. Stunned, joyful gratitude. That God would have mercy on me and freely choose me and call me to saving faith in Christ. Paul will show us another way to respond. He doesn't say, hey, because God is sovereign, there's no use in praying. And there's no use in sharing the gospel. I think up on the screen I have some verses from Romans chapter 10. God's sovereignty doesn't contradict prayer and evangelism, but is the, the reason I can be confident that he will answer my prayers and I'll be confident that sharing the gospel can save people. So Paul says his response to his burden for Israel, even in light of God's sovereign choice, is brothers, in verse 1 of chapter 10, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, the Jews, the Israelites, is that they may be be saved. So Paul prays. He trusts God and he prays. And he says in, in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And then he continues in verse 13, Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And after that in Romans 10, he also says, How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching to them? So clearly, God is sovereign, and clearly we're responsible to... Share the gospel, and we pray, and we trust God to answer. So what I'm going to ask you to do, ask us to do, in for a few minutes now, right now, is I'm going to ask you to pray um, either silently, or you can pray out loud. You can pray by yourself or with another person or two. For a person or people in your family who still need to come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Or pray for friends or groups that you work with or that you know, that they would come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. So just take some time to do that now. If you, if you want to pray with someone else, just grab someone next to you, pray, uh, 
however you will. And I'll close us and uh, we'll continue worship through song. So pray. Father, our heart's desire and prayer for your people, Israel, is that they would come to salvation. They would recognize Jesus as their Messiah. And all the blessings that you have designed for them to enjoy, eternal life in him. Father, there are many connections we have in this congregation, family, friends, co-workers, um, people groups that we're passionate for who need Jesus. We, we thank, Father, of many who are celebrating Ramadan, many Muslims who know of Isa, but who don't know him as their Savior. Pray, Father, that many of them would turn to Jesus and receive him as Savior, have life in him. Pray, Father, for family members and people in this church who don't yet know Jesus Christ. Maybe they've been exposed much to him. Maybe they've been exposed little to him. Pray, Father, for you to open their hearts, open their eyes. In your time and in your way, but draw them to yourself. Cause them to see that Christ is glorious, that sin is awful, that eternal life is fantastic that you are good and merciful that you are mighty to save all who come to you all who call upon your name shall be saved they will confess with their mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead 
And Father, I pray for any who are here this morning who have not yet really trusted in Christ for salvation, for life, not really embraced him as their only hope for forgiveness of sins in life, that you would show them that Christ is good, that he is the way to, to the Father, that he is the way to eternal life, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, that we can only come to you by him. And Father, I pray that we would be alert to opportunities to make the gospel available, share the gospel, to live for the sake of the gospel. Father, we are in awe of who you are. You are the sovereign God who, by your grace, chooses your people. It's not by chance who comes to know the Savior. And yet you made it very clear that we are responsible to respond to the gospel, responsible to repent from sin, responsible to turn to you. And as we stand before your judgment seat one day, there will be no excuses. But in Christ, we'll have that certain eternal hope, count of righteous in his sight. Thank you, Father for giving us a certain hope in Christ. Your promises are good. Your word has not failed. We put our trust wholly in you. In Jesus we pray. Amen.